with you. Are we still doing okay? We're still here? Awesome. Me too. So every fall, if you've been with us for a while, one of the things that we try to do is a sermon series. We try to take some time to intentionally explore a a theme or a question or a subject or a whole bunch of Bible stories, and we weave in and out of those things up until Advent. And so in the past, do you remember past sermon series that we've done? Let's put you on the spot. Yes. Yeah, we, we've done stories you don't hear in Sunday school. Um, so we look at some of the, like, the crazier stories that are just too risque uh, for Sunday school. We explore some of those ones. Or some that you do learn in Sunday school that you shouldn't learn in Sunday school. That's most of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else have we done? John. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, we did Seeger Goes to Church, where we looked at different protest songs throughout history and asked what would our faith and spirituality say to those. Any others that we remember? Or the ones that you hated, maybe that's a way to... <laughs> yeah, we, all kinds of ones that we've done. We've done um, knots, and so we've looked at the things that often trip us up. Uh, we did things that we're supposed to wear. Hold on, I can't remember them either. Why am I asking you? Uh, But this fall, we're going to enter into a new one, and we're going to explore the miracles of Jesus. Each week, we'll look at one of those really bizarre stories about Jesus healing the lame, making the blind see, making the dead come alive. And we'll ask the question that we all ask whenever we read it, like, what the is that about? What do we do with it? Because I don't know about you, but I often don't know what to do with the miracles of Jesus. Because I want to take them seriously because it's Jesus. But am I supposed to take it literally? Um, And beyond that, um, what's the meaning? What is it supposed to say to me right here and right now? Are these simply stories of Jesus being, you don't believe in me? Well, boom, what do you think of me now? Um, Or is there something more to them? Is there something else going in? on in these miracle stories that we're supposed to see. And so this fall we're going to rumble with some of the miracles and throughout it we'll ask those questions. Do we see these as just these primitive stories that simply lack a scientific explanation? Do we see them as stories that we're supposed to take literally and historically as factually true? Or is there a different way to hold them? Is there a third option that helps us hold these and see why these are some of the most important stories in the Bible? So that's the plan. We'll do that straight up through Advent with a few little departures along the way. But for this morning, to start us off, uh, we've picked the best miracle, my favorite miracle. And today, we are going to talk about ornaments and windows, jars, And then we'll ask a few questions for you to take home with you. Sound good? Are you with me? Awesome. Well, let's start with a prayer. Let's bow our heads, please. So God, as we head into this time where we ask you to speak, uh, please take these words of mine and do something with them. Speak in them, through them, around them. 
do whatever you need to do to give us each a good and hope-filled word that you want. And so, God, we ask that you do your thing. Amen. So once when I was in seminary, uh, my friend Chris and I, we had to go to the big library, the big University of Toronto library, the Robarts library, to get some books that we needed. And this was an unusual thing because as theology students, we have our own library to go to. But for some reason, we had to go to the big one. And so we got on our bikes, we biked over, we got our books, we sat down to read them. But for some reason, I could not concentrate. No matter what I tried to do, I could not find my groove, I could not get into the zone. It was just getting more and more frustrating as the day went on. And so finally I looked at Chris and said, dude, I, I don't know what it is, but I can't focus. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I know, it's the architecture. And I think he's right, because if you've been to Toronto and you've seen Robart's library, it looks like this. It looks like a turkey Death Star. <laughs> right? How could you possibly study in a place that looks like that? You can tell a lot about something by its structure. Structure will always convey meaning. And while it's certainly true for words and language, it's definitely true for architecture. Just by how something is structured, by its form, its size, its properties, its texture, we can begin to discover not only its purpose, but also its meaning, its function. We can get a sense of the what and the why behind it. And we can trace that idea all the way back to antiquity. Because the word idea and the word form were interchangeable. The form is always going to convey the idea. The form is going to shape and impact how that place feels, is felt, is thought of, and experienced. And if you think of the buildings that you've seen throughout your life, you can get a sense of how this works. Because often you'll see places that look like this. Next slide. Sorry, next one. <laughs> we know exactly what we're walking into and what we're going to experience simply by how it looks. Next one. This is a concert hall in Norway. It's deep down in the caves, and it has some of the best acoustics in the, in the world. And just by being in that space, by hearing the sound around you, you can experience why that place exists. Next one. Or you get our new library. And if you've been in there, you can get a sense that this is a place of expansion, of learning, of growing. There's something special about this place that invites you in just like a good book should. Or, next one. This is also true for our churches. Next one. And last one. Oh, let's go back. Sorry, other way. Yeah, let's stop there. Thank you, Don. We like our religion to be decorated, don't we? We like our church buildings to be shiny and beautiful and ornate. We want them to convey the reverence and importance of our faith and our spirituality. And that's one reason why we have churches that look 
like that. We want our religion to be like an ornament, this beautiful thing we can look at and feel the meaning of it all. And it gives us an idea of what our religion is about. We come here to behold a big, beautiful, important, powerful God. And that's great and that's good. But over the years, people have begun to think about religion a bit differently. Our understanding of theology and faith and spirituality has begun to evolve. And slowly and surely, our architecture has kept up with it. And we ended up getting churches more and more and more like the ones that are coming up next. Next slide. Like that. Next slide. Like that. One more. And like that. The new form conveys a new idea, a new meaning, a new what and why. And as these churches help communicate Religion is a lot like a window. At its best, and there's a key phrase if I've ever heard one, religion is meant to help us see. It helps us see what is here and what's beyond. It shows us how things truly and really are and meant to be. And the same principle can be applied to miracles. As the great Fred Craddock would say, The miracles of Jesus shouldn't be seen as ornaments we make Jesus shiny with, these things we hang on him to show how special he is, but rather miracles should be seen as windows, these things that Jesus gives us to help us see, things that we look through to discover truths and wisdom about God, ourselves, and our world. The miracle stories are important for us to sit with, Because they can show us something that's not just special about Jesus, but they show us what's possible about our lives and our world. The miracles can show us what could actually happen in our world, what things could actually be like. And miracles, therefore, and here's the rub, Miracles are these stories that call us to believe and live like that kind of life and that kind of world that we're seeing could actually happen. And that's why these miracles are some of the most important stories in our tradition. Because they call us to see things differently and reimagine what's possible. Now we can go to the next slide. So that's the invite I want to make to you throughout this series. That's why I want to invite us how to hold these miracles, to hold them as windows, asking with each one, what does it help us see? What are we seeing through it? What does this call us to reimagine? And what does this show me about my life, my world, and our God? Are you with me? So the miracle for today. The miracle we're going to talk about today can be found in the gospel according to John and only in the gospel according to John. And it's the very first miracle that he tells us. This is how John actually starts off his book. He's got a short little prologue and then this is the bam, the first story that he tells us. And that should tell us something. There's something in this story that John thinks is so important we have to hear it first. There's something in here that sets the stage for everything 
that's to follow. And the story is a story about Jesus getting a bunch of drunk people more drunk. That's the story that John starts off with. But first, a disclaimer. This literally is a story about Jesus getting drunk people drunk. This literally is a story about Jesus going to a party and getting a bunch of buzzed people more buzzed. And for us today, with our sensibilities around addiction and substance abuse, this can be a really offensive story. It can be a really triggering story. But back in Jesus' day, those sensibilities, those concerns, they weren't, they didn't exist. So as we enter into this story, we have to kind of hold that intention. We have to recognize that this is pretty offensive. We would object to Jesus doing this today. But back then, it didn't have that same weight So we need to name that and recognize that, but also just live in the tension of that's not how it was back in the day. With me? Thank you. So the story begins with Jesus, his mom, and a bunch of the disciples being invited to a wedding in this place called Cana. And now this was a big deal. Weddings were a huge deal in the first century. After an elaborate and extensive courtship process, all the friends and all the families would gather at someone's home for a seven-day party. And they would wait on the new couple hand and foot, and they would just eat, drink, and dance for the entire week. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? If you think you're tired after one night of weddings, you've got to go back in time. And while the, part, well, the point of part of that was definitely to celebrate the marriage, Um, An even bigger function of that seven-day party was this. It was a break from all the work, the struggle, and the stress that people experienced every other day of the week, every other day of the year. We have to remember that at this time, this was a world of empire. This was was a world of oppression and despair and darkness a world where you worked 24-7. Vacation days did not exist. Weekends did not exist. Life was just straight up hard. This was a world where moments of pure joy, of rest, of relaxation, they were so foreign and so far and few between that people talked about them existing sometime in the future's future's future. Sometime when God would come and make all things right, then we'll experience rest. Then we'll experience joy. Then we'll experience peace. But for now, it's just a grind. And so to have a wedding, to have a chance for a seven-day party to eat, to drink, and dance to excess, well, that was a big deal. It meant something beyond simply a marriage, but it was a time to indulge to experience excess, to feast. Weddings were a brief taste of what they believed would one day eventually happen. Still with me. So everyone's there. Everyone's having a time. But for some reason, Jesus' mom notices that there's no more wine. They've run out of wine. And so she looks at Jesus and simply says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus is all, what do you want me to do about that? And they have this parent-child conversation telepathically, and Jesus finally relents and says, fine, I'll go and do something about it. And he goes off and tells some servants, 
to go get those six jars that are by the door, to fill them up with water, and then go and serve wine out of those. And the servants, no doubt a bit confused, they go and do exactly that. And they discover as they're pouring out of those jars that the water that was in those jars has now been transformed to wine. And not just any wine, the best wine. We're not talking apothic. We're talking the best wine you have ever tasted in your entire life. Yes, that was a wine dig. We're talking over 1,000 bottles, over 6,000 cups of the best, finest, most delicious, beautiful wine you've ever had in your entire life. And so the wine gets brought out, it's poured. People can't believe how good it is. And the party starts up again, it continues, and everyone goes back to eating, drinking, and dancing. And that's how John starts his gospel. That's the first story he tells us. That's who he starts with saying, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the guy who keeps the party going. And I love this story. And not just because it challenges some of the more uptight notions of Christianity that are out there, um, but I love this story because of where it takes us. And to see where it takes us, we really need to understand and be clear on what the miracle in this story actually is. Because the thing is, the miracle is not the wine. It's not the act of transforming the water itself. The miracle has everything to do with those six jars of water that were sitting by the door. In the first century, one of the threads that ran through Judaism was an emphasis on purity. The general idea was in order to be seen and accepted by God, in order to be allowed into community, in order to be allowed into life at its fullest, you had to be pure. You had to be free of any wrongdoing. You had to, be, you had to have a clean conscience. You had to be in good standing with God. And so knowing that throughout the day enough, of stuff, enough stuff happens to make us impure, these rituals were created to make us pure. You'll be told to go and do these things, and after you do them, then you'll be considered pure, then you can connect with God, then you can go back to your community, then you can experience life at its fullest. And one of these rituals they created had to do with washing yourself with holy water that they kept in these big jars that would be by your door exactly like the jars that we hear about in the story. And you'd begin and end your day with those. You'd begin and end pretty much everything with those. You'd use them before and after you would eat. You'd use them before and after you'd have sex. You'd use them before and after you went to work. Before and after pretty much anything you would do, you would go to these jars, you would be washed, and it would make you ritually clean and make you pure. And that's why these jars were at the wedding. That's why they're sitting at the door. That's why there are six of them. Big jars, as tall as I am, full of water that you would go back to after you ate pork and milk by mistake. Go wash. Okay, I'm clean again. You can go back to the party. People would need to be cleansed throughout the whole week in order for them to be seen as worthy of being there, as having a place in God's world, 
in order to find life. They would need these jars. And it's these jars, it's these jars that Jesus takes and transforms the water in them to wine. So knowing that, can that change how we understand what the miracle is in this story? Because the miracle isn't that Jesus changed the water into wine. The miracle is what people saw through him doing that. The miracle is that Jesus took a system that told people that in order to be in God's presence, in order to be good and worthy and belonging, in order to find the kind of life that you're looking for, you needed these jars. And he took these jars. And by changing the water into wine, he said, you don't need them anymore. You never needed these things. You don't need to begin and end with these. That's not where you'll find your life. And so as people looking to this story to find out what it says to us, as people looking to find out what the miracle is, the thing we need to ask is, what are our jars? What are the things that we begin and end with? What are the things we go back to again and again and again to make ourselves good, acceptable, and worthy? What are the things that we do to earn our place in this world? What do we do thinking that if I do this, then I can find my life, then I'll have approval, then things will be good? Anyone know these kinds of jars? We all have them. Sometimes they look like obligations that we receive from our religion or our family. Oh, if I fulfill this obligation, if I vote this way or believe this or get this job, then I'll be good with my family, then Dad will approve, and I can finally earn my spot. Sometimes they look like wounds. These wounds we go back to again and again and again because they become so powerful, that's who we are. Or sometimes they look like costumes that we put on to earn respect, to earn the admiration of others. Sometimes they look like boxes, these things we live in, so afraid to break out because it just is neat and tidy and safe in these things. That's where we find our life. Other times they look like checklists. Oh, if I volunteer here, if I do this, if I get my kids involved in this, if I read this book and go to this book club, then check, there I find my life. Still with me? Do you know what your jars are? I remember once in undergrad, my jars were my grades. All my good friends in undergrad were ridiculously smart people. They all have doctorates now. And I remember feeling that in order to be seen as worthy of their belonging. In order to be part of that group, I had to have good grades. And so I would exhaust myself all throughout undergrad by working, by studying, by reading, by showing off my grades, by trying to get their approval, by, look at my grades, look, I belong, look, I'm good. Beginning and ending always with my grades. And if you know what your jars are, you know how powerful they are, don't you? 
mean, these are foundational for our lives and our identity in so many ways. And so we can imagine what would happen if they were taken away. It'd be disruptive, wouldn't it? It would change everything. Which makes this miracle kind of scary at first. But then again, all miracles are. Because if miracles are seeing something new, to be invited into something new, that's scary. It's always asked to be changed, to be asked to change is always scary. Because if we don't gain our lives from these jars, where do we find it? What do we replace them with? What are we supposed to begin and end with if it's not our jars? Well, that brings us back to the wine. That best wine you'll ever, ever have. In Jesus' day, and certainly within our own tradition now, what does wine symbolize? Not rhetorical. When you come up to communion, uh, you get the bread of life, and you get the cup of joy. Wine is symbolic of joy. There's this old rabbinical saying that without wine, there is no joy. Remember why weddings were important. It was a taste of what they thought would one day come. It was a day when, when all work would be over, when oppression would end, when light would rise, when peace would flow, when people could finally once and for all experience joy. When we talk about joy in our tradition, we're not talking about happiness. As Paul Tillich once said, joy is the emotional expression of the courage to say yes to being our true self. When we talk about joy, we're talking about that experience, that feeling of being truly and fully alive just as we are. And wine in our tradition and in Jesus' day, was symbolic of that. So that's what wine symbolizes. And if Jesus changed water into wine in those jars, and those jars are the miracle, what do we see through this? What is Jesus pointing out for us through this miracle? He's showing us that our life is not found in those jars. Life does not begin and end there. But life begins and ends with joy. For those of us going back and forth to our jars, trying to find and earn our life, the miracle Jesus shows us is something liberating, powerful, and beautiful. You don't need to do that. You never needed to do that. You don't need to live like that. You won't find your life there. Life, rather. That life that is full and deep. That life that expands and grows. That life is found in joy. It's found in the things that make you truly and fully alive. Those things that fill you up and spur you on. It's found in those things that remind you that despite how dark and grim the world may be, there's still goodness and beauty in it. And it's only there in that joy that you'll find your life. The miracle Jesus shows us is liberating, 
us from going back and forth to the jars. He's showing us where we find our life. He's showing us where we begin and end. That it all begins and ends with joy. So some questions to take home with you. These ones would be good to write down. What's your joy? What's that one thing in your life that fills you up? That makes you come truly and fully alive? That makes you, you? What's your joy? And as you figure it out, your job this week is to think about, how do I fall into that? How do I surrender to that? How do I make that what I begin and end with instead of my jars? And finally, let's go back to the story. So Jesus changes the water into wine. People are realizing like, whoa, I don't need the jars anymore. I'm liberated from that. I want to drink that wine. I want some joy. Who didn't drink? Who was at that party that was so frustrated at Jesus for turning that water into wine that they refused to take part in joy? How do we not become like those people? How do we not become people who, when joy appears, we immediately say, no. Nope, can't take that. Nope, that's not me. How do we not become those people? How do we become bringers and bearers and enjoyers of joy? So what's your joy? And how can you relish in it? Two questions for you to take home. So as you go from this place, knowing that life begins and ends with joy, that life begins and ends with you being you, May you go in peace. May you go in love. May you go and do it loudly. And may the grace and peace of Christ be with you.